as we begin today, I'd like to show you a couple of brief videos. We've been having a little bit of technical problems, so if they don't work, I've got a description that I used out at Teeter when I didn't have video, so we can make an adjustment if necessary. But um, some of you may have seen uh, one or both of these videos before. Uh, if you have seen them before, uh, just do the little experiment again uh, and try to let others enjoy the experience for the first time. Uh, the videos give the instructions so you'll know what to look for. So let's watch the first one together. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? <coughs> this video is from research by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri and is copyrighted. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? <laughs> For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team <laughs> leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. <laughs> All right. Learn so, more about whoops. this. So I'm sure uh, many of you um, might have seen that before. Uh, so you might have seen the girl the first time, uh, but when they did their research on this, Christopher uh, Chabrith and Daniel Simons, uh, in 1999, they found that uh, around 50% missed the gorilla altogether, and that people swore that there was no gorilla in that video. They, they said, there is absolutely no way I would miss a gorilla coming in the middle of that video and banging its chest for four or five seconds. There's no way. And then they would rewind it, and they would show them that they completely missed it. Um, and then the second one, uh, it really got me. 
uh, because I saw the gorilla, obviously, just like most of you did, because you were looking for it, right? You might have still counted. There were 16, by the way, passes. Uh, but you might have missed uh, even keeping track of the passes because you were really going to not miss the gorilla the second time around because you figured the monkey business experiment. Surely there was going to be another monkey or gorilla or something in this video you were supposed to see. But I totally did not see the person leaving or the changing of the curtain um, because I wasn't told to watch for that. And, and my experience hadn't told me, it had told me to look for a gorilla, but it had not told me to look for anything else. This highlights that we miss a lot of other unexpected things. And it, it, this experiment also lets us know, um, learn about an important human characteristic, and that is that we are prepared to focus, that what we are prepared to focus on uh, determines what we see. In fact, we almost have become programmed to see what we expect to see. And in some ways, this mental shorthand can be beneficial, but it also means there is a lot that we miss and that we are susceptible to being influenced in what we do see. So it's really important to also then think about the reality that if we're very influenced by someone telling us what to see, who is telling you what to see and why. And this also does not just have to do with visual focus. Uh, for instance, in the past, often television news reporters gave information first, uh, what we used to be, you know, call facts, and then offered interpretations of what those facts might mean. And then since you as the viewer uh, were given the facts first, then you could better navigate varying positions on any given topic before coming to a conclusion. Often though, sometimes today what happens is we are given conclusions that often have very little to do with verifiable facts. We are told someone or some group or some nation uh, state should be feared or has done something terrible, so we assume that that is true, and then when we look at the video or whatever they use to support that, because we've been told to look for that, that's what we see. This experiment also has a faith application and reminds us why we as followers of Jesus must consistently and passionately proclaim the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ presents an alternative reality to much of what the world believes is the true story. Love, not hate. Peace, not violence. Forgiveness, not revenge. Unity, not division. Weakness, not power. And generosity, not greed, are the ways of Jesus. And they are also where we must place our attention. This is critical now more than ever because if we do not, the world is happy to give us other things to place our attention upon. And we cannot just proclaim uh, the gospel in words, but we must do it with our very lives. Just as God became flesh and dwelt among us in Christ's incarnation, we too must be flesh and body embodiments of the gospel. The good news in Jesus Christ is that his reclamation project has begun. The old ways of darkness and death have been defeated in Christ and are replaced with the new ways of light and life. The walls that divided and separated us are being torn down, and, the fact, and in fact, all the world is being healed and becoming new because of Jesus Christ. 
and to be effective agents of the gospel, a great place to begin is by finding God in all things. And yes, all things means all things. Because if we do not find God in all things, if we try to piece God out into different areas of life, calling some things and some people holy and some things and some people unholy, or some sacred and some secular, then we will be easily divided and led astray. When we find God in all things, we recognize there are no God-forsaken people or God-forsaken places or on this Labor Day even any God-forsaken work. And we must challenge and condemn anything or anyone that tries to tell us otherwise. When we find God in all things, we are no longer driven by hate or greed or self-protection. When we find God in all things, we begin to recognize the good gifts of God in ourselves and in others, and we are freed up to show appreciation to them for sharing those gifts with us. Now, this is something that I've, I've known. Um, I've known for a long time um, that God is in all things. But I don't think I was as attuned to recognizing um, the gifts of people around me and the ways that they could bring joy to my life and the ways that I could bring joy to them by recognizing their gifts and showing them appreciation for those gifts. Um, it's amazing, and I think God has made it this way for a reason. We don't all have the same gifts. Our community, our world would be a boring place if we were all exactly the same and all possessed exactly the same gifts. You know, if we could all sing, there'd be no one to listen. On my renewal leave, I intentionally looked for God in all things, and amazingly, when I started looking, I began to see God in all things. From simple little things like sunshine and laughter and interesting little encounters with signs that in our country mean one thing and in another country mean a totally different thing, or the way we use words in different ways that are just humorous uh, to us when we see them, uh, to larger concepts like grace and love. And throughout these experiences, as I began to see God more and more around me, Jesus' words from the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount started echoing in my ears. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. This is kind of like... This everyone here is kind of like that all and finding God in all things. Here it is, everyone who searches, everyone finds, everyone who knocks, the door will be open. I saw the gifts that God had given people and how they used these gifts to bring joy both to themselves and to others. And how people with differing gifts joined together to knit together community. And over time, I also began to see, you know, see a pattern emerging over and over again. And that pattern was um, intentionality, being intentional, looking, and, and then you would see. And then you were filled with awe, partially because maybe you hadn't seen it before, but partially because just the goodness of seeing these gifts. And then the joy that came from seeing the way uh, that this affected you and affected others. 
and then being able to appreciate and show appreciation for those gifts uh, that were present as gifts from God. For instance, um, I'm going to share some little things. This isn't going to be a travel log. Those of you who want one of those, I'll be happy to sit down with you and show you thousands of pictures. Uh, but <clears throat> I didn't really want to do that today. Um, and I picked some seemingly ordinary things maybe that we encountered on our trip because I didn't want you to think uh, that finding God all in all things required you to go travel around the world and you know take three months off your job. I wanted you to recognize that finding God in all things can be done anywhere, any place. But for instance, while we were in Ireland, we spent some time with an old friend of Michelle's and her family in a local park in Dublin. Uh, my daughter and her son, the night before, had talked about that they both really enjoyed playing soccer or football. And so Killian, their son, brought his soccer ball with him to the park that day. And so initially it started out the dads going out there with our son and daughter and kicking the ball around and, and his little sister who was four who was out there just kind of more getting in the way than anything but you know trying to play a little bit too um, and then all of a sudden kids started just coming from everywhere and pretty soon there were a dozen kids um, who didn't know each other at all uh, some of who uh, were not even speak speaking the same language and they came and they asked if they could play, and we all just started playing together. And so, you know, they're out there playing. We, we had, well, that tree, and now here, this sweatshirt, that's that goal. And, you know, some kid throws some other junk down over there at a water bottle here to make our goals. And then we started playing, and then, you know, it was, it was fun. And it was just amazing to see um, us all spending this time together in a, kind of an impromptu way. The simple gift of a game. And the welcoming of strangers, which in this case was us, led to a wonderful experience of community. Or when we were in Venice, Venice Italy, we went to Murano Island and watched some glass-blowing artists at work. And as we watched this one man in particular, uh, he was just so engrossed in what he was doing, and he was just, it was just amazing to watch him. And I think we were all sitting there like with our mouth wide open, just seeing what he was able to do with fire and glass and a little bit of powder color and just making these amazing things. And then finally, when he had finished this little horse that he had made, um, he stopped, he took a piece of paper and he lit it on fire and put it on there. And then he looked up at us, like it was like he didn't know we were there before that moment, that he was so engrossed in his work. But then finally he realized there are people watching and he must have seen our faces. Because then he just was filled with joy in sharing the gifts that God had given him uh, for uh, the good of others. And not only had he made something, but now he was able to share this thing, uh, this thing of beauty uh, with us as we were gathered. And we were able to uh, show him our appreciation and thank God for his gifts and for this experience. Another place that sometimes you might not think about uh, finding God in all things, but when I was in the other Venice in California, um, one morning earlier I went down to the Venice Skate Park, and I was standing around the edge, and there were probably, you know, 15 or 20 um, people skating, and then there were probably another 50 or 75 people just standing around like me watching them uh, skate, 
And there was one person who later I found out was a professional skateboarder. He had a very distinct look about him, and he had a very interesting skateboard uh, painted. And so I looked it up. You know, Google's amazing thing, you know. Uh, so I looked it up later and found out he was a professional. But he was there, and for about an hour, he had been skating around doing all these amazing tricks. And then, but every time he would end with this one trick that he just couldn't land. He just couldn't get it down. He just kept bailing out and trashing himself, and he was getting frustrated, you could tell, but he stuck with it. And then finally, after about an hour, um, he landed it, and the whole place kind of stood there in awe because they didn't think it was possible to do what he had just done, and they congratulated him. And his face just beamed in self-satisfaction and the knowledge that he brought joy to others with his gift. And we've experienced this you know, with artists and farmers and musicians and chefs and tour guides and taxi cab drivers, you know, people using their gifts, bringing joy and building community. So seeing God in all things is critical because it makes us recognize the wholeness that comes uh, from using your gifts or recognizing your gifts, using your gifts. Uh, and then experiencing the joy that comes uh, when you're able to use them and build uh, a community together. And again, I said that if you want to intentionally follow Jesus, to lead a life as his disciple, we must find God in all things. But I realize for some of you, all is tough. You know, this sounds nice sounds good in theory or maybe if you have a three-month sabbatical and don't have to go to work but it is also quite difficult especially when confronted with the reality of pain and loss and suffering and I get that I really do um, it's easy for most of us to find God when things are running smoothly and when it's easy and when we get to do fun things. But it is equally easy to blame God and even doubt God's love and care for us when things go bad and we're in the midst of tragedy. While I was gone, I read a book um, by Father James Martin, who happens to be a Jesuit priest. Um, where he shared that he often thought of God as a great problem solver. Anybody ever thought about God that way? That God is there to solve problems. So if I've got a problem, I'm going to ask God and God will fix, fix it. That's what God does. Never considering the fact that there might just be some of his problems that God wasn't all that interested in solving. Or that perhaps God had already given him the capacity to solve the problem for himself or with the help of others. He shared a story that sadly paralleled an event in my own life as well. He and I both experienced the tragic death of a close friend while we were in college. This put that belief in a problem-solving God for both of us to the test. It appeared the great problem-solver now wasn't so much into solving problems as creating problems. And I was angry and confused, and I blamed God. You know, I blamed other people 
It was like God forgot that his job was to protect me and to keep me from such pain and loss. I thought God had abandoned me, so I wondered why then shouldn't I just abandon God? Well, Father Martin tells of an encounter that he had with one of his other friends shortly after his friend's death. And he knew that she claimed to have a deep faith. And he wanted to tell her how angry he was at God and convince her that it was all just a sham. You know, how could a God, a good God, let our friend die so young? She listened to his pain and anguish and feeling of abandonment. And then she said softly, well... I've been thanking God for Brad's life. And he said he still remembers having his breath taken away by her answer. Rather than arguing about suffering, she was telling him that there were other ways to relate to God. Other ways than as the great problem solver. And her answer opened up a window unto other vistas of faith. For me, as the pain subsided from my friend's death, I too began to encounter a different kind of God, a God who is with us, not far away, not absent, not distant, but with us in the midst of our suffering. And I still find myself often shedding a limited vision of God that I want, one that I can keep nice and neatly in a box for the greatness of the God that truly is. Scottish philosopher John McMurray contrasted real religion and illusory, like illusionary religion. The maxim of illusory religion is as follows. Fear not. Trust in God and he will see that none of the things you fear will happen to you. And then real religion, said McMurray, has a different maxim. Fear not. The things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you. But they are nothing to be afraid of. When we find God in all things, we come to a new place of joy in the adventure of life and faith, and we face it all without fear, knowing that God is always with us. Remember these words we heard earlier from Scripture. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Give these things your attention. Give God your intention. And recognize the ways that God is at work. The ways that God has gifted you and has gifted others. Thanks be to God for all the gifts that he gives for the joy that comes in seeing and sharing them, 
and for the opportunity to show appreciation to one another for the richness of the community that they create. Amen.